a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, Pray with me. God in heaven, we thank you that you love us, that you've given us your word, that your word rightly divides truth from falsehood, that your word rightly pierces, divides bone from marrow, it exposes us, it breaks us down and it rebuilds us in you. So God, we pray this morning uh, that you would meet us in your word. I pray that the Words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So whether or not you're new um, or have been coming for a while, uh, it's important to know that we've been walking through uh, Peter's letter to several churches in Asia Minor. Uh, We're in a series called Resident Aliens because in the beginning of this book, 1 Peter, What we've seen is that the Apostle Peter says to us that we are, quote-unquote, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And when he's saying that, what he means is that we are a people with a place and yet at the same time without a place, like never quite at place here in in this world. Uh, He's saying that we are residents of the kingdom of heaven. We are residents of God's kingdom, and yet at the same time we are residents here. That heaven is our home, but we reside here, and therefore in the meantime, there is a way that we ought to live and think and act and hope and love. And so as we've been walking through this idea that we are resident aliens, we've been considering several things that ought to mark us. And if you've been coming, uh, well, if you haven't been coming, I'm going to review them really quickly. If you have, perhaps you'll have noticed something about each of them. Um, and, And if you have, you'll see what I'm talking about. The first thing is, the first mark that we talked about is a living hope. As resident aliens, as citizens of heaven, we have a living hope. That's a risen Christ. We have a living hope. That living hope pushes us, moves us into holiness. And if you recall, we we talked about holiness in two forms because God is holy and that holiness manifests itself in two ways. One way that God is holy is that he is completely other than us. That's actually what the word holy means. Other, separate, just revered. He, He is beyond us. 
right? The, the scriptures scream of this. Your ways are not our ways. How high above us are you, O God? You are seated enthroned above the heavens, right? This is poetry. What it's not meant to mean is that there are tears to the universe and that somehow God's throne is physically above the universe, right? We, we, we recognize that above is a relative term, right? <laughs> but it means that God's position is higher than everything, which means he is separate from us. God is wholly other. And in, this, in, in another sense, God is completely, utterly, morally perfect. And as we begin to unpack that, what we begin to see is that God loves perfectly. Have you considered that? The holiness of God drives him into love. And in the same way, we are called to be holy as God is holy. We are set apart for a purpose. We are called uh, to, to a new moral standard. And that moral standard, Peter tells us, Jesus tells us, is love. And so the third mark of the church, right? Living hope, holiness, love. And as we love three people, God one another, and even our enemies. Right? These are the things Jesus commands us. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Love your enemies. As we do this, we mature. We grow into the next mark, which is maturity. And that's what we talked about last week. Maturity, the goal of church is to see Christians, to see people matured in love so that they can love the world into the family. And so we talked a little bit about how specifically at Union Church, we believe that disciples are matured. They're matured as they're shaped by the word in the context of family while on mission. But those are the marks. And if you're listening, there's something very Western, even still, about the way that we think about and have talked about all these marks. A living hope. What was the call? You have a living hope. I have a living hope. Like, live in that living hope, you. Nick, live in your living hope. You have it. Live in it. Right? Holiness. Melissa, be holy as God is holy. I'm to be holy as God is holy. Right? Love. Amy, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Love the people that frustrate you. The people that make you want to slam your head through a wall. Loving like Jesus is loving them best. Right? Paul, grow up. No. Be mature. Be mature. We're called to maturity. What do you see about each of these things? The very individual. Which is a very Western idea. Right? Like this idea that there are things that we focus on ourselves. And when I say Western, in some regards, I mean, there, if you look at sort of the church, the span of church history, there's kind of been an overarching conflict that has, has, has gone all throughout church history and was most most readily revealed in the Protestant Reformation, right? And it's this idea, if you look at 
Catholic, to be Catholic is about the community. It's about the church. Augustine says there's no salvation outside of the church. That's a very Catholic understanding. And what has happened, what's crept up through the Protestant Reformation, is about the individual, personal salvation. Right, listen, fam, like personal salvation is a construct that the early church had no idea of. Like, they wouldn't have had a way to articulate that. Now, we understand, like, they talk about belief, and there is a personal nature to it, right? But it's not this individual sort of privatized faith. It was a community, right? And there's this battle going kind of back and forth. Like, is it me and the Word and, and, and Jesus, or, or do I need other people, or is it both? And, and I think we rightly understand that there's a measure that's both, but to this point, we haven't talked about it. And this week, what we see in, in Peter's text is that the final mark, the final mark of a resident alien that we need to walk through is compelling community. Those two words together, not just community, compelling community. And so the basic theory, the basic hypothesis that I'm putting forward to you today is this, that if as a people we live in light of a living hope and lead holy lives and are supremely and mind-bogglingly, nonsensically, prodigally loving, and that if we all begin to act maturely, that what will form is a community that is compelling to all people. And that is what we're called to be. Not just the community, a compelling community. So let's hop in the text and let's see where we're coming from with this. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, so um, <clears throat> what's really interesting and a, um, a helpful practice, I think, uh, is to go through the New Testament and to look at all the different metaphors that's used for the church, right? I think our idea of what the church is or church has been morphed and shifted through time. Uh, for some people, church is a building. So no matter where you live, you go to church, right? And so you see folk drive hour, hour and a half to go to church because this is the church to them. For some people, and this was kind of my community, my culture growing up, church was the pastor, ultimately. Like if the pastor wasn't there and the pastor wasn't preaching, you didn't really do church. You really had church. It was the pastor, right? For some people, and we're seeing this, thank the Lord, we're seeing this breakdown. For some people, the church is a political entity that's meant to move the culture through power and, and policy, right? That's the church. If you're, right? But the scripture has a different idea of church. The word that we translate church 
right? It's a Greek word. It's ecclesia, ecclesia. It's, it's not a word that like Jesus made up. There are some words that we have that in the, in the New Testament that Greek people didn't really use. And like the church kind of just made them up. For example, Christian, right? Which clearly like Christ had to be translated from Messiah, but Christian as a term, nobody really, like the church kind of made that up. Sanctification, the church kind of made the word that means that up. But there are words that we use like gospel and ecclesia, ecclesia, depending on who you talk to, right? Church, these are not words that we made up. But the church appropriated those words and gave them gospel context. And so that word, ecclesia, literally, literally means gathering. It's a gathering. To be at ecclesia, you, you gather. So people would get together for whatever reason, for whatever purpose, and they would call that ecclesia. And then all of a sudden, you come to Matthew chapter 16, and Jesus asked the disciples this really peculiar question um, given what he's been doing right so Jesus has been teaching he's been performing miracles he's been loving broken people he's been eating with people that nobody else would eat with right like the religious folks were too high and mighty to eat with the people that Jesus ate with right and what Jesus would tell them over and over again is if you actually were children of my father you'd be eating with these people not trying to advance your power right so Jesus is doing this type of thing, and then all of a sudden, he breaks form, and he asks the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Jesus, who's never seemed to care about his rep at all, all of a sudden asks, like, when you say my name, what is it that people think? And they start spitting out answers, right? They say you're a good teacher. They say you're Elijah, come back to life. In other words, a powerful prophet. They say you're a good voice for change. And Jesus says, all right, but who do you say I am? And Peter gives the most... Consider this for a second. Like, these were real people. So they're really sitting in a circle, like talking or whatever. They might not have been sitting, whatever. They're really just talking to each other. Jesus, who do the people say I am? Oh, you're a really good teacher. Man, you're a prophet. You, you're it. Like, people love you. Who do you say I am? And Peter's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Right. So think about the other 11. Right. Like, I feel like that's got to be like a record skipping moment in a movie. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. What? Like Peter says this. And you know how I know that that everybody else must have turned their heads and been confused by this is because Jesus says this. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For man has not revealed this to you. Flesh has not revealed this to you. But God, God has revealed this to you. And then he goes on to say this, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. Now this conversation takes a whole new turn. A whole new turn, guys. Because until that point, Jesus had only ever talked about the kingdom of God. We talk a lot about the church in our culture and very little about the kingdom of God. When you read the Gospels, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God and very little about the church. In fact, he mentions the church twice. You can count them twice in all of the Gospels. And I love the church. Believe me, I do. But we need to understand the church is a mechanism of the kingdom, not the other way around. 
He says, on this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All of a sudden, Jesus appropriates this term church and he says, on this, on this confession, Peter, on this truth that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, that I have power and dominion, it will be fully revealed when I am raised from the dead, when I break even death. It will be revealed that all the power and all the glory belongs to me. And based on that, I'm going to gather people. That's why every task that the Lord gives his church involves gathering people. He says, make disciples of all nations. Right? You'll have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses. Right? And what is it? You'll gather people. Jesus gives, he says to the church, he says to the disciples, change the world. And what do they do? What does it say in Acts 2 that they devote themselves to? In order to change the world, they devote themselves to the gathering of the saints. They gather. And so now he takes this word, ecclesia, which means gathering. And listen, this is what's amazing about this. Nobody after the church uses the word ecclesia anymore for anything except for church. He, he appropriates it to his mission and to himself. And so we get this word church and it means gathering, which means that we are a gathering. We are a community of people. We are the church. Us. And then expand that globally. The church is the gathered believers, the gathered disciples, the gathered community of the Lord. I need to make sure I'm on time. Sorry, folks. (laughs) And so we're gathered together as a people. And this is what Peter is talking about. And all of a sudden he says, now you come to him. And that you is a collective you. It's about this community. It's about the church. You. And I want you to hear that and think about all the times that Jesus doesn't say, hey, you, Peter, like he did in this text. But he says, you collectively. He says something like this, the kingdom of God is within you. Now our Western, post-enlightenment, American, individualized selves want to hear that and think, oh, the kingdom of God is within me. That's not what Jesus said. He was talking to a group of gathered people, his disciples, and he said, within you, in your midst, is the kingdom of God. That's that Matthew 18 type stuff where two or more gathered in your name, or in my name, sorry, right? The kingdom of God is within you. You go make disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, right? Listen, I believe that each one of you individually, if you are following Jesus, is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole theological construct that we can go into later. Fine. But for now, it is suffice to say that each one of you has the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. But the pictures of the Holy Spirit being poured out, poured out is never one cat in his room by himself. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The Spirit of God is poured out on the church. It's poured out on a collection of people. So Jesus is saying, you, when you, you, a, you are a, a it's a, it's a, um, <clears throat> just lost the word. It, it's, it's singular, but it's collective, right? You. And this is what Peter is saying, you. And we have to start thinking of ourselves as, as we, as us, as when, when we talk about Union Church, we're saying you, that's us. 
when Paul says, or Peter says, you, that's all of us. And he's saying, you are a, as you come to him, who's a living stone rejected by men, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Now listen, the Bible says both. The Bible says your body is a temple, but at the same time, what Paul, Peter is saying here, I keep mixing that up, what Peter is saying here is that you are being built into a spiritual house. And that you is not you, TJ, it's y'all. Right? Like, Peter's getting southern here. Y'all. And so if that's the case then, if the church is meant to, if growing up, if, if possessing the marks of resident, resident alienship means that we are a part of a compelling community, then, then let's talk about that community for, for a little bit. Um, and and, and we've, got <clears throat> we've got enough time to run through this and just hear three things about this. First, we're going to see that this, com- this community is strange. This community is strange. Second thing we're going to see is this community is powerful. Right? And then the third thing we're going to see is that this community has a foundation. It's strange, it's powerful, and it has a foundation. So the first thing, why do I say this community is strange? It actually is is wrapped up in in understanding and remembering who Peter is writing to and then looking at the words he says. He says, you all are being built into a spiritual house. But let's just for a second skip to verse 9. Listen, if you, sh- you ought to like memorize scripture, believer. Like it, it's, a, it's a very important practice. It's a very formational practice. And if you're like, oh, I'm just not good at it or I don't know where to start, here's where you can start. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So if you're reading in the ESV, which is the verse we use, or the translation we usually use, but that I'm kind of getting like tired of, and that's fine, translations are not that different. If you're reading in the ESV, I want you to hear something that they, like, I want you to hear this. Translation is interpretation. And they've made an interpretive choice here that I think is not helpful. It's not wrong per se, but it's not helpful. And it's right here in verse 9, the very first thing it says. In the ESV it says, you are a chosen race. Man, I wish I had, we had time to really go into this. But race is a social construct born out of colonialism, which means it's not a concept that biblical Christianity would have had. They understood ethnicity, but race, no. There was one race, one people, the human people. Many ethnicities, many tribes, tongues, and right nations. So race is unhelpful. And the reason it's unhelpful is because the word that they should probably use and more translations do use, man, the King James Version of the Bible gets this one right. I'm not hating on the King James Version, but it's hard to read, right? Listen, the King James Version says, you are a chosen what? Generation. Generation. A royal priesthood. All right. So why is, that, why is that little difference so important? 
Because Peter right here is calling us to remember, and if you had been a first century Jew converted to Christianity, you would understand this. He's calling into remembrance the creation. He's calling into remembrance Genesis chapter 2. Right? So if you read Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, what you get is a picture of God who's king, who by the power of his word creates. But if you read Genesis chapter 2, what you get the picture of is a God who is covenant Lord, who loves his covenant people. Genesis 1 is very, is very broad, very general. He created the heavens and the earth. He created man and and woman after his own image. Genesis 2 gets very specific. He, cre he creates the Garden of Eden. He creates Adam and woman, who then becomes Eve, right? He names, there's names being given. And listen to how Genesis 2, uh, specifically in verse 4, so the second account of creations, he says, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That word day is a, is a um, it's, it's not literal. It means in the day, in the time. It's like the day of the Lord, right? Like that doesn't mean a specific day. But anyway, so let's just, let's, let's hear what's going on. And uh, walk with me through this. Because I, I get that we're going under the surface, like we're going deep here, Right? So in Genesis 1, there's a name that the Bible uses for God. It's Elohim, right? Elohim is the name for God. What Elohim is, is the general God. Elohim is used a lot in the Bible, right? When you read the Psalms and it talks about God speaking to the Philistines, he's using the name Elohim. Elohim says to you Philistines, you Hittites, you Canaanites, Elohim, it's the general word. God is the God of everybody, Elohim. But then in Genesis 2, did you hear what it said? The Lord God. And that is, the name for God there is Yahweh. Yahweh. And that is God's covenant name that he gives and he uses with his people. When God calls Abram out of the land, it says that Yahweh says to Abram, I'm going to send you to a land. This is a personal God. When God meets Moses at the burning bush, and Moses says, who should I say has sent them? And God says, I am that I am. God says, my name is Yahweh. Yahweh, it's his covenant name. It's the name that he uses with his covenant people. So you have to understand that in Genesis 2, what we're getting is a picture of a covenant God who promises and who loves and who interacts. So God in general is over everything. God in covenant is with his people. And so Genesis 2, uh, the, the second creation account, is the creation account that's of the generations where Yahweh, covenant God, is with his people. And so Yahweh, covenant God, creates Adam and woman, and he tasks them with two things. Number one, be fruitful and multiply. Number two, work the garden and keep it. And I said we're going all the way in, so we got to go even deeper, y'all. Work the garden and keep it. That phrase, work it and keep it, is only used two other times in the Old Testament. And this is important. Because they're both used to describe the roles of the priest. One in the tabernacle, 
and one of the temple, which means that the Garden of Eden was supposed to be, was the proto-temple. It was the first temple. It was the place where God dwelled, where covenant God dwelled with his people and where they were a priesthood who had dominion. Who has dominion? King. Well, yes, God, but earthly terms. Who has dominion? Kings. So they had dominion, and, and they worked it and kept it. They were royal priests. So now this generation's account with the covenant God in a temple or with Adam and, and Eve, Adam and woman, and this is, Adam means from the dirt, right? So it's not like Adam gets a cool name, and this isn't, like people use this sometimes to like create hierarchy that God just didn't have in mind. Woman means from man. God was just naming them as they actually came in the story, right? From the dirt, from man. Anyway, they're priest kings. All right? And then in Genesis 3, that's all broken. But we come here to 1 Peter, and what he says is, you people, you are, and this is why the translation is so important, you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. That I am building up verse 5, into a spiritual house, a temple. You are the restoration plan that God has for all things. And who is he choosing to do? See, this is where, this is, this is where, it's just, this is where it gets crazy is that Peter is saying that this is you to a group of people made up of folks from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is all of Asia Minor, which today we kind of think is like, oh, it's, it's Turkey, but it's actually kind of like Turkey and Armenia and Jordan, da, 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 right? And, and if we think about it in terms of race, which is wrong, then we think about them as a similar type of people when really they were people of varying ethnic groups and cultures and diverse understandings of the world. And P Peter says that the way that God has changed in the world is through bringing a diverse group of people together to be community. And all of a sudden, that's strange, right? Like I grew up in a, I went, I went to a predominantly white high school. And somehow, me and the other black kids all found ourselves. We found each other. Somehow, right? And we hung out together. Right? And we, we spent time together. And what were those divisions based on? Look, there's a lot of like social, <clears throat> America's, we, we got work to do, y'all. But there is a sense in which we divide based on culture. And what is culture? It's historical, right? It's the, it's the, it's the historical, it's the accumulation of traditions, uh, languages, uh, ideas that are based in history that we all share. So for example, in Union Church, there's actually one person who's not here today, which I feel bad because now it feels like I'm putting him on blast, but I'm not. Uh, oddly enough, his name is also Sean, who like me, is the child of immigrants from Jamaica. And so we talk and we immediately clicked because we have shared cultural understandings that y'all don't have. <laughs> and that's okay. 
And our tendency, though, is to break off into people with shared cultural ideas and understandings because of shared history. And listen, if we want to talk about reconciliation, we cannot deny the shared history that affects our future. Otherwise, we will be obtuse. There's no other way to put it. We'll run all over histories of hurt and of oppression or of privilege and fail to understand how reconciliation actually happens. Nonetheless, Peter says, this is the group of people that, I've pulled, that the Lord has pulled together. And that is strange, even back then. Because even though they didn't divide by race because it didn't exist, there was cultural and ethnic division. Jews and Gentiles, Scythian and, and Greek. Like these, these things were divisions. And in the church, there were all of them. And I love how Acts does it, how Luke, Dr. Luke in the book of Acts works through it. Because he says he'll take time to name them. He'll say someone was a Cyrene which means he's from modern-day Tunisia. And someone was from Niger. Can I, can I have a little aside because this has been working on my heart for a little bit? The fact of the matter is, even in the book of Acts, the church is being shaped by Africa, which means that colonialism is not responsible for the gospel going to Africa. So please, please, please miss me with that. Please. All right? It was there before it was in Western Europe. Right? This is a reshaping thing, and we need to learn this. But anyway, coming back, Luke is very happy to display all of the diversity in the leadership and in the body of Christ. Why? Because it's a part of the compelling community. Is somehow, through the work of the Spirit, people who would not be together are now bonded together. This was the church. This is what Jesus did when he had a guy who was, uh, he, he did it with political parties. He had a guy whose name was Simon who's described as a zealot. What you may not understand is that a zealot was a political faction, almost like the Tea Party. They think that the government was way, 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 way too big and that there, there, there are other, I don't want to, anyway. They, they just didn't want Rome to have anything to do with Israel. And then on the other side, there was a guy named Matthew, and he was a tax collector, which means that he was a, an agent of the state. He collected taxes for Rome, which means politically he was fine with Roman occupation of that land. And he was even gaining off it. Now, if they had met in, like a, in, in any other forum, the, the conversation would not have been pleasant, Right? And yet Jesus is like, you know what, y'all two, come around my table. You two are going to work together to build this kingdom that I'm doing. Right? Like Jesus chooses a diverse group of people. Our community is supposed to be strange because it defies the categories of culture and who would and would not be spending time together. It's a strange community, but it's a powerful community because of what we just said, that all of this is coming back to the community as temple. Right? That, that, should, that should put a weight on you. Now, the Spirit of God, Lord willing, will lift that from you, but for a second, you should be overwhelmed with the intensity of that description of you, church, are a, a temple 
You were being built into a spiritual house because the temple was where God dwelled among the people. And what I love is that in the Old Testament, people had to go to the temple to be near God. But in the New Testament, in the church, the temple has hands and feet, which means that as we scatter, we are still the church, but we actually bring God to people. That is amazing. And as we walk and as we go and as we bring God to people, as we live in the mission that Jesus himself walked in, loving the unlovable, touching the untouchable, bringing hope and redemption, we are a compelling community because now what they see is not just people who are going in and like working with lepers or working with prostitutes or working with tax collectors, but it's a people who shouldn't even be a people, right, doing this. And that's what he says. All of a sudden now, he says, once you were not a people, but now you're a people. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have mercy. This community is awesome. And I would argue that one of the biggest factors, one of the biggest stumbling blocks, hurdles to people actually coming and seeing and seeking and savoring Jesus Right? It's not reason. It's not like science. It's the compelling community that God designed failing to be the compelling community that God designed. As we fail to love one another, as we fail to reflect the diversity of God's kingdom, as we fail to love the world together, we fail to be the compelling community that we were designed to be. So how is it that we do this? And we're not going to spend much time here because hopefully going through the text, it should seem pretty evident, but it's because we have a foundation. We have a cornerstone. And I need you to understand this. As goes the foundation, so goes the house. As goes the cornerstone, so goes the structure which means that we as a spiritual house built on the foundation of Jesus Christ ought not expect any more or any better or any less than what Jesus received. And what is the foundation of our church? It's Jesus, but how is he described? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Family, like this is, this is Jesus. Do you know why Jesus offended people? It wasn't because he was a jerk. It's because Jesus actually, in saying there is a new kingdom and a new way, began to chip away at the power structures of the world. And when power is attacked, people fight back viciously. When you look at the church, they were freeing people from, uh, in, in Acts, right? There's <clears throat> people are in economic and spiritual bondage to these folks who are like creating idols and selling them at absurd prices. And, and um, the church, Peter, one of, or no, Paul says, look, you don't need 
meddle to get to God. Like, God's here, right? You don't, and, and is, that ought to distinguish Christianity from every other religion. You know, uh, uh, consider this. Like, everyone who believes in God or every religion has this understanding that God's over here and we're kind of over here. There's this problem of how to get to God. And every other religion sort of says, do these things, build these structures, and you can get to God. And Christianity says, nah, like, that's not going to work. But here's good news. God's, just, God's come to you. Like, that's insane. Right? And so Peter, Paul and, and, and Silas and him are saying that. And so people are like, okay, we don't need idols. And what's happening? The power brokers, the idol builders, start losing money. And so they stone Peter or Paul and his folks and run them out of the... Like, this, when, you, when you attack, when you speak truth to power... You put yourself in danger. You put yourself in danger. It's an offense. It's a stumbling block. And that's what this community is meant to do. Because we're built on the foundation of Jesus. It's time that we stop being a pathetic community. And start being a prophetic community. We can do that. Because you, you, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people for his own possession, that you would send forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Let's pray.